0: This is Out of the Basement, a podcast dedicated to radiation medicine.
1: Hey, this is Dr. Jason Becta once again crawling at you out of the basement here in this surprisingly warm stretch of the spring. And and by warm, remember, I live in Vermont, so that's maybe like 40-something degrees. It's basically this Sahara, as far as I can tell, up here. But, as I sit here in shorts and a tank top, scrolling through Twitter, as is my major source of news, knowledge, and information, there's been an uptick in people talking about the Regional Workforce paper that was published last month, which is good. It means people are reading it in depth, which is always the challenge with any of these papers, especially these dense economics papers. No one no one really, well, I was about to say no one really enjoys reading them, but here I am. The As, as time goes on here, and, and I've been talking with some of the the other folks involved and, and with the original publication, and hopefully we can get a few other things put together and published in the future as we all try to get our lives under control as staffing levels are just brutal everywhere. But in the meantime, there's a few kind of main topics I figured we would do, hopefully, more quick hit episodes, not these like 90-minute Ken Burns style documentaries that I evidently just have a deep desire to do. And uh, but as, as one of the things we want to talk about is facilities. Does the findings in the workforce paper make sense in the context of how many radiation oncology facilities there are in America? But before we get to that, I've been watching a lot of. I like to like, watch documentaries or or like listen to a lot of podcasts or things while I'm contouring and. I've been on a real bent about various movie critic things, just, I don't know. The algorithm, I just do what the YouTube algorithm tells me to do. And for one of the reviews I was watching brought up the concept of a syllogism, and uh, I realized it uh, really explained, in my opinion at least, kind of what we see here, or the the reluctance of how we want to consider or why people don't want to really turn their Intense brain power to talking about the radiation oncology market in a rational way or in a reasonable sort of uh, critical way. So for those who don't remember off the top of their heads, like I didn't, I think this is what like logic 101 is. Logic at class, that's a thing you can do. But the syllogism, it's a deductive argument where a conclusion follows from the truth of two or more premises and the argument moves from a general to specific and opposes inductive arguments which move from specific to the general, with the most kind of classic example being premise one, all humans are mortal. Premise two, Aristotle is human. Conclusion, Aristotle is mortal. And I would really argue that for the last 20 years, the the plague of syllogism has been one of the main barriers to us having a serious conversation around, well, not just conversation, but also actions around supply and demand in radiation oncology, with the premises being Premise one, I'm an intelligent, critical thinker. Premise two, I act with the best of intentions and make good decisions. Premise three, I chose to become a radiation oncologist. The conclusion then being, since I chose to become a radiation oncologist, and I identify as smart in making good choices, then radiation oncologists must be smart, intelligent, excellent decision makers, right? And that leads us into the natural second syllogism whereby, premise one, radiation oncologists are smart, excellent decision makers. Premise two, having a system which trains too many radiation oncologists is not smart, not a good decision. Therefore, the market must be fine. Because if there was an issue with supply and demand, leadership would address it, right? And so th- this, again, and I, I think I've talked about this a couple times now, but I think this hang-up of we tying our egos, and I don't mean that in a derisive way, I just mean that in like a literal way of tying our egos and our self-worth to our job, which is a very natural human thing to do, really is what's pumping the brakes on a lot of people, critically examining the economics of radiation oncology, the market of radiation oncology, because it in essence feels like critically examining ourselves, of critically attacking ourselves. And I think it's important to, again, just keep hitting this point of talking about these things or or even concluding that, hey, this isn't a good situation is not concluding that you are not good or that you made bad choices or that you are not smart or you are not a good... And none, None of those things. None of those things are true. You are different than the sort of invisible hand of radiation oncology. And part of the reason to keep kind of hitting that point is that in the wider world in general, radiation has an unsavory reputation, and obviously there are many reasons for that, but I kind of go back to, to here specifically in America, really the atomic bomb in World War II followed by decades of Cold War and the threat of nuclear annihilation basically means there's always a lingering negative connotation with radiation, and not only is it difficult to talk about these things, the market of radiation ecology, the economics of radiation ecology, because it does feel personal and critical critical evaluation of ourselves, it also then to kind of turn and face the wider world, pro-radiation arguments are not exactly applauded most of the time, but best, usually neutral, and at worst are met with open hostility. And even, especially amongst ourselves, or look at the benign radiotherapy research, which obviously I love, and the, the Twitter, whenever that Alzheimer's paper came out a week or so ago, the, the reactions that that gets by some individuals on the internet. And it's difficult. It's easier sometimes. I think there's a lot of reasons for for a lot of people to do research or for the research that we see. But being pro-radiation, publishing, trying to expand indications or talk about radiation in a positive light, I really, am, I don't want people to think that I'm being, well, I am prone to hyperbole, not in this sense. I just mean like, even if people are not kind of openly attacking pro-radiation things or whatever, there's a sentiment. It's not It's not encouraged, it's not rewarded, but what is rewarded is hypofrack or omission. And not to say that those sorts of, anything can be attacked, right? And nothing is technically safe as uh, vilified as that word has become, but it few things I see kind of bring out such ire. We we often remind, or I often am reminded of, you know, that monk in the Da Vinci Code, the main antagonist, uh, Silas. He... That, that That's what I feel like we radiation oncology is. We are the albino monk antagonist from the Da Vinci Codes starring Tom Hanks, adapted from the novel. That is that is radiation oncology where we're, nobody likes beating ourselves up more than us. And we are less likely to hit ourselves with the, what is that, a cat of nine tails? Whatever that thing was. Hypofracomission, emission, we are less likely to whip ourselves with a straps on nails than publishing pro-radiation because that's really kind of well well we might talk kind of in in colloquially or just see each other at meetings or whatnot about oh another hypofractile or whatever but you you will pull folks out the woodwork if you start publishing pro-radiation things in it in in terms of outside of the safe zone so whole lung Lotus radiation for covid that sort of thing and a really discourages especially more junior folks from doing that and it's it really kind of it's not obviously by any stretch of the imagination the exclusionary or the the sole reason for that type of of research but it, it certainly plays a part there's a paper by a guy named matthew levine 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 like adam levine it's spelled levine he won a the american chemical society does a history award which is interesting But so he won it back in 2014 for a paper he wrote then in the Bulletin for the History of Chemistry. The paper is called The Two Faces of Radium in Early
0: American Nuclear Culture. To the extent that radium had retained its aura of health and vitality up to the early 1930s, it was because it had been successfully portrayed as a natural phenomenon, free of the connotations of materialism and moral ambiguity that sometimes attended scientific medicine. Those who traded in radium products also appealed whenever possible to the sun whose energy they mimicked, the water they could infuse with energy, the mountains from which they were mined, or even the plants they could revitalize. The ubiquitous language on ersatz radium nostrums asserting that they were a natural cure and not a drug was not simply there to escape regulation or signal allegiance to a particular healing sect, but also to encourage the belief in the fundamental wholesomeness of energies whose magnitude might otherwise be cause for alarm. The more that orthodox medicine became scientific, both in philosophy and in the patient's impression, the less that the pamphlets for emanators and ointments and spas traded in the argo of the scientist. And even when they did, it was almost always the language of the natural historian that they used. Radium tonics spoke of essential minerals and of stimulating cells and tissues, but rarely of alpha particles or ionization. Consumer radium products, relentlessly associated by their advertisers with healing nature, and often pointedly contrasted with the artificial, more vividly technological manifestations of medical irradiation, thus served as a bulwark of positive associations for radioactivity. Thus, even in the midst of newspaper stories about chemists killed by long exposure to the radioactive substances they researched, the manufacturers of the Rator radium mineral water jar, could characterize the traces of radium it contained as a natural product brought to you straight from the treasure vault of nature, a god-given healing substance for suffering mankind. The association between radioactivity and vitality has lasted even into the post-Hiroshima era. One can still pay to descend to the bottom of a mine shaft in Montana to breathe in radon gas, and homeopathic doses of natural radioactivity are once again regarded favorably by some alternative health practitioners. Furthermore, radioactivity was indelibly established as a part of the physical landscape by two decades of advertisements, a fact that was omitted by the tourist brochures of later decades, but not easily forgotten, especially as nuclear testing in the post-war era brought new kinds of radioisotopes to the Western United States and points downwind.
1: So like one, my little AI narrator there didn't hit that. Final points downwind line as hard as I would have. That was meant to be kind of a zinger. I'll work on that. But two, yeah, that's a good paper. It's it's worth. It. He's a that guy's an excellent writer. So I'll give I'll give the American Chemical Society props. They it's a good paper. I just don't agree with it. I mean, I don't disagree with it. I don't know. Having a complicated emotion, but really, that's kind of the the point. Is that we're up against this cultural sort of baggage that no one else in medicine is really up against, well, all of us have our sort of cultural, our legacy problems, but quackery has been around here forever. And the quack medicine specifically around radium a hundred years ago in the first 30 years, from 1900 to 1930, 35 or so, it, it it's really kind of vilified and rightly so in some of the senses, but we didn't really, we barely know what we're doing now in medicine, definitely didn't know what we were doing a hundred years ago. And... That's where you hear about the things like the radium dial painters, uh, the, the radium girls. And so you start, radiation kind of comes about in the end of the 1800s. And then there's 30 years of these questionable medicines and horror stories and of this mysterious sort of energy, this force that we don't really understand. And then we have the atomic bomb and we have Cold War and threat nuclear winter and Chernobyl and 3 mile island and radiation really just not exactly a good PR topic and we don't really do ourselves any any favors over on our little corner of the world and it really is it's it's more so than many other things people can understand medicine but you can go to CVS and buy ibuprofen and take it and you that is very understandable for the human mind and experience surgery is very understandable We can take a sharp object and cut ourselves. there's, There's a way that we can interact on a personal level with other types of medicines that make people feel like they understand it more, which gives us more of a sense of control than radiation. Radiation is a mysterious, invisible force that can do incredibly destructive, unimaginable things and mutate. DNA where it's where you get the incredible hulk and that is a scary thing and it naturally lends itself to fear and misunderstanding and we are doing no one any favors by shirking away from the uncomfortable introspection of of talking about things like the the market and there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that in which we'll talk about in some of the other episodes here of my giant 400 pages of notes about Splintering off from the ACR and being our little group, and it's it's really kind of fascinating. Sort of people forget it. we're just going to call it like a, what is it six degrees of seven Kevin Bacon do the two degrees of one Del Regato, and we really need to remember that radiation oncology as a specialty is is one of the youngest sort of specialties out there, and we really haven't. Had a chance to to kind of adapt, and then our technology has changed so fast, you know. And I think that's really put a lot into it. Where if you astro as the um, AST, uh, I can't remember, well not but you know it was the it was a club, the American Therapeutic Radiology Club, and then the society, and so on and so forth. So that that inaugural meeting was only in the fifties, and even medical oncology you didn't see until the fifties and sixties. So well, radiation's older than chemo or, or that sort of deal. It's uh, both specialties. The oncology sort of discipline has really only been around for about 70 years. And you don't see, Astra didn't kind of break off and it become its own sort of group distinct from the ACR until the end of the 80s, the, the first part of the 90s there. And we really haven't kind of been our own thing for, for very long. And the evolution of the technology that we use, of the world around it, of the NCCN guidelines were first published in 1996. And so you have kind of the rise of 3D radiotherapy and simulators and computers in the 90s, the NCCN guidelines, then you have the internet, the advent of IMRT in the early 2000s, and then the evolution of technology and things like coming on with uh, cone beam CTs and all this IGRT, and then VMAT and the kerfuffles over supervision, direct in general and the just insane proliferation of technology and then you have the pandemic which kind of forced our hands on telemedicine and in 2019 cms kind of reversed the the direct supervision issue and and all these things were just so rapid and we can barely sort of get our heads around it and then at the same time the the people who are still really calling the shots are the ones that were kind of around in the in the long long ago in the before time so yeah there's going to be a lot of issues where if you trained in the late 80s early 90s and you knew all the people who basically literally started everything it's uh, hard to adapt when things change so fast and part of that the the whole point i'll get off my soapbox here and, and that's kind of how i think it's important to interpret all the economic all the workforce stuff and specifically the big astro workforce study and something that People forget about is is there's other there's other ways. Something that I was disappointed personally in with that workforce analysis from specifically the work that the consultants did was they did not use multiple. There's a lot of things out there, a lot of sources. They didn't cross check other available sort of sources and and places of information and and say to themselves, "Hey, do these numbers make sense?" And I'm specifically talking about the past. So we can debate until we're blue in the face the assumptions about the future or whether or not they're valid i'm interested in the the trend developed from the numbers from the measurable path where my crystal ball is no better than anyone else's crystal ball about predicting the future but the one thing we shouldn't be doing is predicting the past and that's what the workforce paper did and so back in the day back in the again long ago in the before time when we were part of the ACR the uh, NIH and I think this was before the NIH had the NCI I can't remember but the NIH sponsored the Patterns of Care study which was conducted by the ACR the first one I think was done in 1974 and then it kind of went up through the 90s I'm not I haven't really dug into exactly the history is there the last one was published in 1999 was published by from a nursing standpoint again I got to dig in to that definitely the last kind of real true ACR one was the early 90s and It was meant to characterize sort of the infrastructure of radiation oncology in the United States, meaning how many facilities are out there. What type of machines do they have? Do they have cobalt? Do they have these fancy new megavoltage linear accelerators? And that has sort of fallen by the wayside in that particular form. But there has been some lovely things that have come out and specifically an an amazing, very thorough paper that came out in 2021, kind of updating the number of facilities in the country from a concept of uh, geographical variation. We'll start with the one of the last ones. It might have been the last one, but I'm not quite sure. One of the last ones from the ACR. It was published in 1992
0: in the Red Journal. Between 1974 and 1990, the Patterns of Care Study, PCS, of the American College of Radiology, ACR, has conducted a series of seven surveys of the structure of radiation oncology facilities for the entire census of facilities in the United States. The aims of these surveys were to identify the basic structural characteristics of the radiation oncology specialty, to allow comparison with previous surveys, to identify trends in the patterns of equipment and personnel, to measure the capabilities of facilities to deliver modern radiotherapy, and to provide a basis for defining samples for other surveys. Patterns of Care Study defines as a facility each separate physical location in which megavoltage radiation therapy is delivered, regardless of any professional or administrative connections with other facilities. Patterns of Care Study maintains a mailing list of valid radiation therapy facilities based on the previous facilities survey, updated with information from other ACR sources. The radiation control officers in each state, the District of Columbia, New York City and Puerto Rico, updated or supplied lists of facilities in their areas in response to requests from PCS. The PCS facility survey used a self-administered mail questionnaire sent to the head of each radiation oncology facility. Questions included validity, number of treatment machines by type, availability of other types of equipment used in radiation therapy, numbers of personnel by category, numbers of new patients and types of procedures performed in the facility. For variables measured at a point in time, data was requested as of January 1, 1990, and for variables measured over a period of time, data was requested for the calendar year of 1989. Multiple mailings and calls yielded identification of and responses from virtually all facilities doing megavoltage radiation therapy. Returned forms were reviewed for completeness and logical consistency, and the data entered into the database was verified. Almost all facilities provided answers to all basic questions on equipment, personnel and patient load, Radiation oncologists and physicists working in more than one facility were noted. Those who split full-time hours among multiple facilities were counted as one full-time professional. Duplicates were subtracted to avoid double counting in personnel totals.
1: Well, that, that sounds thorough. It's almost it's almost like a playbook for what you could do now. But in the actual paper, so again, this was uh, published in 1992, on page two of the article, but it's page 984 of this, this edition of the Red Journal. They have some tables on the collected data. It, it's really interesting to look at this and reflect on where they were and where we are now. But starting in 1974, there were 1,013 radiation facilities. They were treating 304,680 new patients for the prior year, so 1973. That was an average of 301 patients per facility. In 1974, they did not track the new patients per machine metric. Then in 1975, it went up to 1,047 facilities. They actually started recording treatment machines at that point. So there was 1,047 facilities containing 1,377 treatment machines. And of, of those 1,377, There was 407 linacs or betatrons and 970 cobalt machines. At this point in time, there's still more cobalt units than linear accelerators as we know them now. They treated a little bit more than 300,000, but basically in 1975, you had 299 average new patients per facility and 227 patients per linear accelerator. This kind of goes up through the years, and so kind of things of note, is that from 1975 to 1990, you go up to 1,321 facilities in 1990. That it consists of a total of 2,397 treatment machines. Of those, almost 2,400 machines. By this point, you had 1,900 Linacs and 500 Cobalt machines. The patients treated per year had increased to almost 500,000, and you had an average of 300 and 73 patients treated per facility, which translated to, wait for it, 205 patients treated per linear accelerator. Then they also tracked in table two, that was table one and table two in this paper, they have the census of employees and staff and radiation oncologists and physicists and blah, blah, blah. So in 1974, you had 1,080 full time radiation oncologists and some part time. So you had a total of 1,451 FTEs of radiation oncologists. This increased over time. So in 1990, there were 2,285 radiation oncologists. Of those, those are the full-time. Then there was 150 part-time radiation oncologists. It's a little confusing how they do this. So they're listing 2,335 FTEs of radiation oncologists. So by, I don't think that can be I don't think that's pure people. I think it's more than that. Whatever. We'll say 2,300 radiation oncologists in 1990-ish. ish. In medical physics at that time, you had about 1,000 dosimetrists. You had just shy of 1,100. You had about fifty three hundred fifty four hundred radiation therapists. And you basically averaged 2.23 therapists per machine. So then they again break down a little bit more. In 1994 facilities, there was... 938 hospital-based facilities, 350 freestandings. And so you kind of can see hospital-based treated a little bit more patients per machine per year. So it's 208 patients per machine per year in hospital, 201 patients per year um, per machine in freestanding. So really, it's volume 24, number 5, 1992, this Red Journal article. So then the question sort of becomes what happens. And so in a different episode, we'll talk about the history of ASTRO and, and of the specialty societies in radiation oncology, because this is right right around when the band broke up. And I'm totally blanking on this. It was nineteen eighty eight when Astro officially voted to leave. I think I think that was it. Again, if I was more prepared, I'd have that in front of me. But so I I would guess reading between the lines and some other things and maybe there's well, there's definitely people out there who were in the specialty at that time. I mean, come on, that wasn't that wasn't that long, it was only thirty something years ago. But so, I think this was probably right when the ACR was saying, We'll miss you. Bye. And we went off and did our own things. So, in that's this paper was published in 1992, something everyone forgets, or at least by everyone, I mean me. And so I keep reminding myself the NTCN guidelines weren't even made at this point. So, this, this era in history were probably maybe. Thirty years from when medical oncology kind of became an organized specialty, and the well radiation had been around longer. You didn't get that first American's Club of radiation oncologists meeting until 1954. So we're not that far distant from when people really started getting organized. And then the NCCN guidelines came out in 1996. So here is an excerpt from the one the Patterns of Care study that was published in 1999. That I, again, it was appeared to be have written and published in a, in a journal focused on nursing. But here is the excerpt from where they were hoping that the patterns of care study would move on to.
0: The PCS from 1994 to 1997 included five new objectives one, to monitor national averages, to determine immediate and long term outcomes, and to assess new treatment techniques. Two, to ascertain the use of national clinical trials in clinical practice, three, to study the structure, process, and outcome of care rendered to minority populations with specific disease sites, breast, cervical, and prostate cancer, four, to join the PCS with the American College of Surgeons in studying breast conservation therapy as a treatment option, and five, to educate and disseminate information about the PCS using the following mechanisms – creating consensus statements using decision trees to guide clinical management, preparing and presenting multidisciplinary scientific reports that would justify the PCS and dissemination of findings to national clinical trial groups. The PCS identified as inferior the use of the Cobalt-60 unit with surface to skin less than 80 centimetres, treatment planning without using simulation, and general radiologists functioning as part-time chairmen. The process and outcome data revealed by the PCS have led to periodic development of consensus statements for specific cancer diagnoses. These disease-specific data have directly impacted practice trends and have established standards of treatment delivery for all radiation oncology settings. Additionally, the PCS for radiation oncology directly impacted the American College of Radiology Accreditation Standards for radiation oncology sites. The establishment of standards of care for specific cancer diagnoses led to the creation of stringent accreditation parameters for a variety of clinical sites.
1: The next one that, or next Patterns of Care type study, was published in 2006 and was done using a slightly different mechanism, but was also published in the Red Journal. And between 2006 and 2021, various other things were published, but again, just to contextualize things that were happening, while this was all going on, so there's the first sort of wave of, of concerns about the radiation oncology job market that was published in the, the era of the 90s. That will be a, a topic for another time. That was similar but different. The people forget Medicare was invented, or whatever phrase you want to use, in the 60s. And then to try to control costs, the prospective payment system was instituted in the early 1980s. And then simultaneously, there was this rise of facilities and stuff. And it was that particular combination of people thought, the as, as someone else, an uh, editor, editorial cleverly wrote or titled, uh, The Sky is Falling. So everyone thought the sky was falling at that point. The The managed care era was funny. I had forgotten all about that term until, or at least the panic around that until I'd kind of dug back into this. But So you know, these patterns of care studies that are occurring in the first sort of concern as the government's trying to control costs, and we all know how well that went. And then we had the IMRT explosion in the early 2000s, which then led to everyone saying, ah, no, job market sign, you doomsayers, doom you're wrong. But the math, maybe it was done. I don't know, I wasn't around at that point. And you had that 2006 kind of like pseudo patterns of care study, but everyone's really riding the IMRT high. And then we all know what happened from 2013 on and all the kerfuffle that's been going on over the past decade. So in 2021, a crew, some from my residency institution, published really a very incredibly thorough paper on facilities and radiation oncology facilities in America using quite elaborate techniques, including like Python scripting and GPS-based Google Maps and blah, blah, blah. Well will just, let me put in the excerpt from the results and conclusion of the abstract from this 2021 paper published in the Red Journal,
0: and it is beautiful. Results. In 2020, a total of 2,313 USRT facilities were reported, compared with 1987 in 2005, representing a 16.4% growth in facilities over nearly 15 years. Based on population attribution to the centroids of zip code tabulation areas, 77.9% of the US population lives within 12.5 miles of an RT facility, and 1.8% of the US population lives more than 50 miles from an RT facility. We found that increased distance to RT was associated with non-metro status, less insurance, older median age, and less populated regions. Between 2005 and 2020, The population living within 12.5 miles from an RT facility increased by 2.1 percentage points, whereas the population living furthest from RT facilities decreased 0.6 percentage points. Regions with improved geographic RT access are more likely to be higher income and better insured. Conclusions The percentage of the US population with limited geographic access to RT is 1.8%. We found that people benefiting from improved access to RT facilities are more economically advantaged, suggesting disparities in geographic access may not improve without intervention.
1: Because the nature of what they were studying here was not technically a census of facilities as the patterns of care studies used to do, and they were more interested in geographic access to radiation oncology facilities, they did not do the the calculation of the average number of new starts and per machine, so on and so forth. There's other things we can explore in the future that kind of talk about that. But the main take-home was that in 2005, again, based on that other paper, there were 1,987 facilities with radiation capacity, and that increased 16.4% to a total of 2,313 facilities in the United States. Providing radiation therapy in 2020. So the point being, just to really bring this all finally back around. Although really only like 35 minutes in here, that's pretty good for me. I should mark this down in a journal somewhere. But the workforce analysis that was published last month, the past is is not something you have to predict or model. The past is measurable, and there's a lot of different ways that we can quantify the workforce of radiation oncologists during that time period. Unfortunately, after the patterns of care study, as it was for the from the 1970s to the 1990s, that was kind of the last real, very strong sort of official census we had on the workforce in terms of the number of radiation oncologists practicing at any given moment. The way that the HMA consultants with the Astro Workforce Task Force paper did it was to quantify claims in Medicare and sort of cross-check a year or two in an independent claims database but which is kind of the most common one. And so if you look at any sort of workforce paper that's published over the last five or 10 years, the main mechanism we use is through usually Medicare claims data. And there's some other places that you can look and which we had talked about at that sort of initial reaction podcast last month of the AHRF, the one of the the Department of um, Health and Human Services stuff, taking about 5,300 radiation oncologists in 2017. But If you pull up the workforce task force, you pull up the HMA model and you look at the numbers, the workforce size that they have in 2015 through 20, they have in 2019, 4,691 total radiation oncologists. And in 2020, they have 4,718, only going up a total of 30. A lot of issues that are with those numbers, of course. The main thing. Beyond just cross-checking with, with other sources is does that make sense? Meaning this 2021 geographic access paper, I would encourage you to go look at it. It is very thorough. It is very well done. And I I it is it is triple triple checked on, on their sources there. So I really do think that 2,313 radiation facilities in America in 2020 is pretty pretty close to as accurate as you're going to get. So if we believe that to be true, that there's 2,313 radiation facilities in 2020, turning to the workforce HMA data, they have 4,718 radiation oncologists. Does that logically track? Because if there's 2,300 places that offer radiation and there's 4,700 radiation oncologists, that's we'll bust out averages here. I hope everyone can do the math. It's two two radiation oncologists per facility. Now, I think anyone who's ever done residency in radiation oncology would know that there are at least 90 departments in this country with significantly more than two radiation oncologists. So then you got to kind of math it out. And there are some rural or critical access hospitals that don't have a radiation oncologist staffing it more than one or two days a week. You have people traveling around at satellites. So I am currently in, in at Rutland Regional Medical Center with a single linear accelerator and staffing it solo. There are facilities out there with single radiation oncologists. There are certainly radiation oncology facilities out there with two. That's where I I just came from as well, over in Saratoga. But does that does that way does that math work out? I. I'm hard-pressed to believe that that's a reasonable sort of assumption, that there are 2,300 facilities, but only 4,700 radiation oncologists in 2020. Now, a much more accurate source of numbers for the, the workforce, the AAMC has incredibly elaborate metrics for tracking doctors in America. How they do that, what it is, how you can get access to it is a topic for another day but they publish total number of physicians per a particular specialty, and they break it down into how those doctors define their time, meaning clinical work, research. I think other is the third one. And so you really get this lovely how many total doctors are in a specialty, how many of those doctors are clinically active. And so for 2019, and it's done every two years, the 2019 data has Five thousand three hundred and six radiation oncologists total in 2019, and four thousand eight hundred and fifty-four radiation oncologists who define themselves as primarily clinically active, clinically full-time. And that's that's kind of what's missing here. So if you have that, that five hundred gap, actually bears out. So if you're going kind to of go back this data from back to 2015 or before, you always see uh, significantly more total. It really starts to get. It really starts to. to even or not even out, but get far, further apart as time goes on, which tracks, right? So in 2015, you have a total of 4,848. And of those, 4,499. So about three, a little bit, three, 350, let's say. So there's 350 more radiation oncologists than there are clinically active oncologists. That gap starts to increase. So in 2017, you have 5,029 total of those 4,600, 4,620 are clinical. And then again, 2019, 5,306 and 4,854. You can look ahead. So this goes all the way up to, well, the most recent published stuff, you have 5,376 total in 2021, and of those 4,865, you do actually see much more exits, switch tracks with COVID and all this stuff. These are all future sort of episodes. Currently, by, I was able to access part of it. uh, There are a total of 5,563 radiation oncologists currently as of 2023. Based on the double AMC data. You can debate, and I've talked with, with Greg, the, the principal sort of consultant, Greg Vachon over at HMA about kind of his, his perception of, of this data and why pros and cons of using it. But the double AMC numbers track much better with everything else and also make more sense in the context of this geographic paper. So if you ha- are assuming the 5,300 total, in 2019, I don't think there's too many more built between 19 and 2020, so you can say 2,300 facilities in 2019. I, I think 5,300 total radiation oncologists for 2,300 facilities is totally reasonable. And I think that, again, supports that and basically shows that the workforce paper as published was off on the baseline calculations by several hundred radiation oncologists, which, of course leads to a whole bunch of other problems down the road, mostly being that the trend, the thing they're, they're predicting, they're, they're basing this on these five years of data. And so if your slope, your trend is kind of modeled on this and you grossly underestimated the number of radiation oncologists total, it's going to be a much gentler sort of prediction. Now, again, prediction being the key word there, where I don't know what's going to happen in the future, no one else does. Debating the merits of the predictions is totally something else. It's just the the actual sort of underlying assumption are flawed. There, this is not measured. You know, it's not cross-checked with, with other sort of things, and ends up being several hundred below what is likely to be true. We'll we'll leave it there for now. We're just people are reading the workforce paper. There are other things out there. There's a lot of other things out there, and that's kind of the issue is that it's really easy to get lost in all this. And check out this geographic paper from 2021. 2300 facilities does. The workforce paper makes sense in that context. Is forty six, forty seven hundred reasonable, or are the double AMC numbers of fifty three hundred more reasonable? Obviously, it's very clear what my opinion is. But so with that, we'll we'll leave it on on that topic, and we're gonna have a lot really more nerdy things to talk about in the future. Just so many archives. It's gonna be cool, as the kids say. Big mood. All right. Till next time.
0: This has been a Photon Media production. Don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to us. Be well and be mod.